The Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program has been in gestation at the Defense Department longer than a baby elephant. CMMC is still not operational, but boy, it has produced documents. Just out, new scoping documents. And do contractors need to read them? Well, joining me in studio with some answers, Holland and Knight contracting attorney Eric Crucius. Eric, good to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks. These documents, scoping documents, these are just out. What exactly are they and why are they important? It's really interesting. They were out. They were released on OMB's website, and then they were pulled back. So the suspicion is that there were draft or final draft documents. I think it's still important to kind of look at them because they're probably final draft documents and that how CMMC is is going to be very close to what those documents are. And what they do is they show kind of how CMMC is going to be scoped, and they also show how assessments should go for the different three levels and which controls are going to be utilized for those three levels. So there's a lot of things were confirmed, but there was also some new information in there that I think contractors should pay attention to. The idea of scoping, there's three levels of scoping. What does that actually mean? Yeah, so there are three CMMC levels. That is all but confirmed. And for each level, what assets that a contractor has is going to be within scope. So for level one, for instance, specialized assets won't be in scope. And that's kind of Internet of Things, government furnished equipment, things like that. For level two, normally those specialized assets will also not be in scope. But for level three, they will be in scope. And then that's one way to look at scoping. Another way to look at scoping is which part of your organization is going to be covered by CMMC. CMMC doesn't have to be a whole organization certification. It could just be essentially a certification that covers the assets you want to cover. And those are the assets that are going to have the information in them that is has to be covered, like CMMC. Right. So for companies that have commercial operations, commercial businesses may not need to come under CMMC as long as there's no crossover. Right. Networks and data between commercial and government. Right. They could have this little section of their company or their IT system that has CUI in it that is covered by CMMC, and everything else will not be scoped at all. So you would need an enclave almost to, Essentially, guess, to yeah. use the technical term for you know that walled-off area of your – maybe put it in the cloud, and then it's not on your data center. That's exactly right. All right. And then the level three is the big contractors, the ones that are all in government. Right. Those are kind of the common name – I won't name any of them, but the common name contractors that everyone knows about that build ships, that build airplanes, things like that. They could also cover smaller contractors, maybe IT providers that have specialized information that's important to the government. So we'll just have to see how many folks are covered by Level 3, but that's going to be a subset of NIST Special Publication 800-172. Looks like about 24 controls, at least according to these close to final draft documents. So essentially they tell you what you need to do to be CMMC compliant depending on the level 1, 2, 3 that you're at. Yes, and it's kind of interesting, like, who determines whether you're compliant or not. For level one, it's a self-certification. There's nothing to stop a contractor from hiring somebody to come in and help them get there. But in the end, it's going to be the contractor putting their signature on the line, certifying themselves to DOD. For level two, there's a third party that would come in for most level two. Most yeah, this whole two. assessment scheme, is that up and running? I mean, there were people that were getting certified to be third-party assessors. Do they still exist, and are they still certified? Yes. Actually, the ecosystem, as they call it, is growing. The CMMC accreditation body, now known as the CyberAB, holds a call every month where they discuss how many folks are in the ecosystem. And it looks like the third-party assessors, there's more than 40 now. And that's not just assessor teams, but some assessors may have more than one team to their name. So there could be even more, and there's a lot more in the pipeline. 
And then for level three, you can only get a level three assessment after you've gotten a level two assessment with a third-party assessor. Level three is the government itself certifying to those additional 24 controls. Got it. And those are really serious controls. I mean, these are things that you would expect the large contractors probably have in place anyway, as a matter of course. That's right. And I think for the large contractors, CMMC is not going to be a heavy lift. They're doing these things already. I think where we'll see struggles are the small, medium-sized contractors that don't have these robust IT systems. And those are the ones that are most vulnerable. And those are the ones that our foreign enemies know are the most vulnerable. So those are the ones that are attacked most frequently. Sure. We're speaking with attorney Eric Crucius. He's a partner at the law firm Holland and & Knight. And you said there's some new things after the papers, after the certification scoping documents were withdrawn and reissued. What is new here that people might not have known a couple months ago? So one interesting thing is that for level one and level two, they talk about a self, well, for level one, a self-assessment report, and for level two, an assessment report, that it's not clear whether that's a separate report that a contractor has to generate or that's automatically generated based on which controls they're compliant with. But the assessment report could be this significant new document that contractors have to produce in order to demonstrate that they are past those controls. So that's one thing that's really interesting. There's also talk about conditional assessments, which we knew about. It's unclear whether those conditional assessments will allow a contractor to perform absent a final assessment that is good for three years. The conditional assessments demonstrate that they're mostly there, but there's still things that are outstanding, and they're called plans of action and milestones that they have to finish within a certain period of time. There are a lot of references to regulations within these documents that have not been released yet. So we're anticipating a full suite of regulations that will come out to support CMMC. Yeah, I mean, every time they come out with some of these new policies for contractors, they run hundreds of pages. Right. And, you know, they do deal with also external service providers. You mentioned it earlier that a lot of contractors, and I think it's a smart decision, will offload a lot of the storage of their CUI to a third party who is already set up for this. And there are specialized providers out there who do that. And according to these documents, it looks like these third-party providers will have to have a CMMC assessment or a FedRAMP moderate or the equivalent of that. So that's not surprising, but it's interesting to see it in black and white because we didn't know which way DOD would go with that. So the Microsoft Azure Cloud, AWS, Google Cloud, and some of the others have that moderate certification under FedRAMP. So that would seem like a safe harbor here. That's right. But that wouldn't take care of all the controls because some of the controls deal with the interconnection between the contractor and those safe harbors. Some of the controls are purely physical, access to the contractor's physical space where COI may reside. Plus user activity, I imagine, must be covered in some of these documents. Absolutely. Passwords, how much permission each user has, exactly to your point. So those safe harbors will take care of a lot of the controls, but not all of them. And how will all of this back up to contracting officers? I mean, there's some rulemaking that has to happen to make this effective, I presume. And I don't know what the state of that is. But at some point, will this get into the FAR such that DOD contracts will have this clause referencing all of these scoping documents? Absolutely. And the DOD clause, the DFARS clause, is at OMB right now. So it's the last stop before it's released. Now, we don't know if it's going to be released as a proposed rule or a final interim rule. If it's released as a final interim rule, we could have CMMC sometime this fall. If it's a proposed rule, it's going to be a little bit of a longer time period, but that is okay because most contractors are not ready for it yet. Right. I mean, the proposed period for comments could be 30 days or 60 days, and then they would turn it around in another 30 or 60 days as a final rule. Right. And I anticipate they'll get a ton of comments in this, so could it be even longer than that? So 
we could see CMMC towards the end of 2024, beginning of 2025, if it comes out as a proposed rule this fall. And not to get too arcane, but could the comments on the proposed rule then back up through the pipes of the system and then find their way into redoing or alteration of the scoping documents in the first place? Absolutely, yes. (laughs) That's why these are not final documents, but it's a great place to look to see to start. And we should also know that this is just one of many things that are happening right now. There's some FAR rules that have just passed through OMB that will institute new cybersecurity controls on non-DOD contractors and reporting requirements if there's a breach. So we haven't seen those rules yet, but they have just passed through OMB. So I anticipate we'll have more to say on that soon. Yeah. And then I guess the question is, does all this get harmonized at some point? So this is doing business with the government. Here's the scope of cyber you've got to have. Right. You remember when the FAR came out, the idea was to harmonize contracting across the government. Here we are with each agency having its own version of the FAR that layers on top of the FAR. And it's the same thing happening with cybersecurity, unfortunately, where we have different agencies with different requirements. I'm hoping at some point they will be harmonized because it gets very difficult for contractors to follow the bouncing ball through all these different agencies. It'll help put my kids through college, but it won't help the contractors very much. Yes, that harmonization, as they say, would be far out. Attorney (laughs) Eric Crucius is a partner at Holland & Knight. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the CMMC documents at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. 
it's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came 
do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah. That's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. A matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.